Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week's episode is totally metal. Bruh. We're taking a look at ancient metallurgy, different ways that metals were used in the past, and how we study them now. Yeah, so actually, our theme tune really should have sounded like this. Well, that was exciting. So, <laughs> thank you. Let's get into it. How about a definition? How about that? So, a metal from Greek metalon, meaning mine, quarry, or metal, is a material that, when freshly prepared, polished, or fractured, shows a lustrous appearance and conducts electricity oh. and heat relatively well. Metals are typically malleable, meaning they can be hammered into sheets. Um, you know, malleous hammer. The hammer. Um, yeah. Or ductile. They can be drawn into wires. Into ducts. Oh. Okay. Uh, yeah. So drawn into wires. So pulled, pulled mm-hmm. thin. Mm-hmm. Um, just like cheese. Yeah. Cheese wire. I love cheese wire. Cheese wire. So the earliest metals that were used by humans were those that can be found in their, you know, native form that is no, that is the terminology in- <laughs> you said that so like oh well, no, no no i was trying to how do i was doing quotes and that's how it came out okay so so yeah so they're they're native form so the native form being they're already in their workable state so that means you don't have to do any smelting or anything like that to do stuff with them so you don't have to add another metal to make it Workable. Easier to work with or make it harder. You don't have to do any of that. Mm -hmm. So these can either occur naturally on our planet or they can come from space. So, okay. Put your email fingers away, everyone. We're talking about asteroids, not the other things that come from space. Nope. Don't actually come from space. Not today. Nope. 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 Uh, So these space rocks, which, you know... Space rocks aren't all rocks. Space yeah. rocks. When you think we just about happen it. to live on one particular space rock. Okay, so these space rocks from not our space rock contain natural metals as well, and that was a resource that some ancient cultures exploited, and some recent ones also. Yes, yes, but that's true. Originally, some ancient cultures, a particularly so, pertinent for example, to today. <laughs> yeah, for example, when archaeologists discovered Tutankhamun's tomb. Tutankhamun from Egypt. Um, you know, stunt. Well, I just I'd like to think that somebody came in being like, "Who's that guy?" That's fair. People come yeah, in from sure. all all walks. Welcome. You know, they they're into like deep 
like, you know, they're, what are they? Crate diggers? Folks that like only go for like the really obscure records. God. All right. (laughs) That was, that was a crate digger of a reference. Keep going. Thanks. Um, I think. Uh, So when archaeologists discovered Tutankhamun's tomb, they were stunned by the riches contained within. One of the weirder artifacts of the tomb was a dagger that confused scientists, sporting a blade seemingly impervious to rust and age. And you can bet that people went, it's it's whatever. (laughs) It's like, no. Um, Research published in the journal Meteoritics. Mm -hmm. Meteoritics. Meteoritics. I was like, surely I should at least say it with more confidence. Yeah. Meteoritics and planetary science confirms that the blade was made from materials from a meteorite. Yeah. Scientists performed X-ray fluorescence spectrometry, um, a method used to learn more about the elements that the object is composed of. We'll save what that is for another day because it's like mm-hmm. a whole thing. Yeah. Um, in this case, they found iron, nickel and cobalt um, in proportions that match known meteoritic rocks. He nailed it. The discovery not only brings closure to a decades-long debate about whether or not the dagger was made from a meteorite, but also gives insight into the culture of ancient Egyptians. Aside from the obvious cool factor of owning a dagger made from material from space, King Tut's craftsmen appear to have realized that meteoritic iron was a long-lasting and tough material. The researchers write that their find shows that ancient Egyptians placed a high value on what they called iron of the sky. If Eric Von Daniken had written it, it would be Iron of the Sky. (laughs) And that they knew about the off-Earth origins of the material. It turns out the king may have had a thing for meteorites. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It's thought that other blades in the tomb and King Tut's headrest may have also been made of Iron of the Sky. If King Tut (laughs) did lay claim to ancient Egypt's most precious metal, he would not be alone. In 2013, researchers discovered that a group of 5,000-year-old beads were made of meteoritic iron, too. Okay. Yep. Okay. So we're saying this group of beads are 5,000 years old. Yes. Not five beads, which are 1,000 years old each. Yeah. Are not 5,000 beads that were created the year previous. I'm just... Yeah. They're, they're a bunch of beads. They're made from meteoritic <laughs> iron and they are 5,000 years old. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. Um, We're clear. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so also along the, the line of clearing things up for our listeners, since I always forget and I have to look it up every single time, uh, oh, every is, single time. I, am, I, I think we've talked about know, this before. I think uh, we've well, done this. I think we have... I think we have in life because I'm oh, okay. that person that, you know how you've got that jerk friend who like you write this whole thing out and then somebody's just like asterisk your, and I'm like, I'm the one who's you're, like, you're asterisk like meteorite. Okay. Okay. Well, specifically for me then, <laughs> um, <laughs> since I have to look it up every single time, here are the differences between asteroid, meteoroid, meteor, and meteorite. Okay. So an asteroid is a large rocky body in space in orbit around the sun. A meteoroid is a much smaller rock or particle in orbit around the sun. A meteor is when a meteoroid enters the Earth's atmosphere and vaporizes. If it does that, it becomes a meteor or a shooting star. Yeah, it's and a, only that during that process. Right. Like, so can something while it is shooting. That's so can something be a meteor and then a meteorite? Because if a small asteroid or large meteorite survives, what? 
yeah, what what's left of it is yeah, the that meteorite. lands on Earth is the meteorite because okay. the "ite" suffix mm-hmm. refers to it being a mineral, and so right. okay, the, it's a mineral derived from a meteor. Okay, that's that's a good way to remember it. Okay. Well, ancient Egyptians weren't the only ones to recognize the usefulness of these space rocks. Meteorite-derived metal is found in the archaeological record of the Arctic Circle as well. Somewhere between five and 10,000 years ago, a meteorite crashed through the atmosphere over Greenland. On its way through the atmosphere, when it was a meteor, the -hmm. large lump of rock, several meters across, broke into smaller pieces and was spread across the Greenlandic ice sheet and the sea at Inanganek, which is uh, now called, well, it's also called the Cape York Peninsula near present-day Thule. So it was several meteors across? Yeah. <laughs> something, something. Comet me, bro. Comet. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> A few thousand years later, the meteorite gave rise to an Iron Age in Greenland, 300 years before Icelandic farmers brought iron and agriculture to the south of the world's largest island. Since then, practically no archaeologists visited this part of Greenland to examine the locations where the meteor fragments fell or any of the nearby settlements. That was until August 2014, when a team of geologists and archaeologists landed in the area. The expedition wanted to find and study any traces of humans exploiting that meteorite. Martin Appelt, an archaeologist from the National Museum of Denmark, was among them. And he said, We knew the locations because what we have here are large scientific objects, but the story of the meteorites as the whole area's source of iron have sunk into oblivion. He continued, saying that for archaeologists, it has been a fantastic resource to examine because the chemical composition of meteoritic iron sets it apart from other types. This made it possible, using the meteoritic iron, to establish contacts over huge distances and to assess whether a piece of iron over in Canada came from the Cape York meteorite or some other source. Appelt also said, quote, This enables us to localize the meteoric iron and see how it has been traded over large distances and testify to the significance of the meteorites from the Thule as a source of iron in the eastern Arctic. But the iron had to be processed before it could be traded. And this is where the piles of stone that surround the meteorites come into the picture because the stones were used as hammers. Possibly the best name that I've come across uh-huh. in a long time, uh-huh. Jens Fog Jensen. His middle name is Fogg. That's great. Archaeologist yes. at the National Museum of Denmark said, they did a heck of a lot of hammering. The blacksmiths what? would start. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's a very approachable way to say things. The blacksmiths yes. would start by knocking off a small piece, thoroughly beating it flat and giving it a sharp edge and then hardening it further so it could serve as an arrowhead or flensing knife. I love the word flensing. Flens. What? What's a, Calypso gets flens in the summer. No, that's that's the little buggies. Uh, flensing means um, skinning a marine mammal and like removing what? the fat and stuff. Yeah, it's a specific shape and type of knife. If you you go ahead and Google flensing knife, I'll try and remember to put a picture up on our social media. But it's a particular shape and it's used to process marine mammals when you when you hunt them. Piles of what, hammer stones. Why, what? No, mm-hmm. hang on. Yeah. Why? Why different? Because it's like thick, because it like the the fat yeah the, is, the shape the yeah. skin and the fat is yeah is, because marine mammals up in the Arctic Circle have often a very thick skin and a very very thick layer of fat because it keeps them insulated. So uh, removing that has necessitated what? a special shape of blade. Does that mean you just looked it up? What? 
<laughs> it's like it's got a deep curve to it. It looks like what well, this one, this Japanese flensing blade that I'm looking at, looks like a cricket bat. Oh yeah. Okay, I can see that. Dang. Yeah. I can't actually see it because I'm not looking at it. But dang, I, I couldn't understand. Yeah. So okay. Um, this so, I mean, but in. like picture. If whales you're hunting whales, big. yeah, yeah, you need a big knife. You can't Breaking get at news. that with a little. Yeah, uh, let's go back to that site in Greenland. Oh. Piles of hammer stones bear witness to the fact that for centuries people have lugged hammer stones to the iron meteorite when they needed to extract iron to forge a knife or a harpoon blade. A specific type of basalt stone was used, and the size of stone varied from something that could be held in one hand to as much as forty kilograms, which is like a twenty-pound stone. They were presumably used as hammers and anvils, respectively, and used until they split. Are you still looking at flensing knives? Sure am. I've moved on to whales, though. They're so big. Okay, well, while you deal with that, let's have a quick break for some ads. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This just in. Whales. Still big. They're so big. (laughs) Okay. Well, the... Anonganek, or Cape York meteorites, are part of a larger story and one that is a real bummer and and part of the, quote, discovery. So this is me saying it that way, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. how I I unintentionally said native (laughs) earlier. (laughs) Discovery of the Arctic by late 19th and early 20th century explorers from North America and Europe. and the exploitation of various Arctic cultures. The meteorite fell to Earth after the retreat of glaciers from the area. All the fragments have been... Run away! <laughs> yes, Those exactly. Glaciers retreating. <laughs> um, all the fragments have been recovered at the surface, partly buried on some unstable terrain. The largest fragment was recovered in an area where the landscape consists of flowing gravel or clay-like sediments on permafrost, indicating that it had been in place for no more than a few thousand years. Okay. But meaning That's that... A while. Yeah. <laughs> but meaning that, like, it couldn't just, have been okay. older than... So something, they knew how old something of, just sitting on the surface of the earth. Yeah, for a few for thousand a few years. For a few thousand years. Yep, just chilling. Oh, no. Nope. I'm getting that feeling again. Nope. I'm getting that... Oh, no. 
Rain it oh, in. Oh, God. <laughs> Other estimates have put the date of the fall as early as 10,000 years ago. Oh, God. <laughs> Keep going. Just sitting there for 10,000 years. Okay. Yeah. Whew. Whew. Okay. The iron masses were known to Inuit as uh, Savak Soa, Great Iron, weighing 31 metric tons. Um, so that was the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman weighing three metric tons and the dog uh, weighing 400 kilograms. So 0.4 metric tons. Yes. Or um, 880 pounds. It's a big dog. It's like um, 110 times the size of your dog. That's 110 calypsos. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Inuit would work the metal using cold forging, which I think that's something that Elon Musk is working on. Oh. Um, it just it just sounds very like Bond villain technology. No, it turns cold out forging. it's just wailing on. Turns metal out into- <laughs> that's just hammering the metal with stones without heating it in a forge. Mm-hmm. Wow, just banging it out. Mm-hmm. Um, excavations from a Norse farm in 1976 located an arrowhead made of iron from the meteorite. So that specific meteorite. Yeah. Right. Or yeah, that, okay. cause the, those three that you named are, are three parts of the same meteorite. They just, right. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. They are three meteorites that were part of the same meteoric event. Correct. Okay. So they're different meteorites. Well, I don't know at what point they broke apart. Like they're all in the same, they all ended up in the same area. I think one, it, I don't think it broke apart in the atmosphere. I think it, when it hit, it broke. Ah, okay. But okay. So it's, so those, those are all made of the same mm-hmm. substance. Same stuff. Like the same. Yeah. So they have the same signature if you mm-hmm. tested it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there was an arrowhead found in 1976 on this Norse farm that was excavated, uh, made f- of iron from great iron, the woman or the dog. Um, and that arrowhead dated to sometime between the 11th and 14th century CE. And it's very presence is evidence of Norse journeys to Northern Greenland. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Here's oh. the part. That's oh, a no, no. It's okay. we're not going to go into the full thing. Okay, great. Yeah, great. Okay. Cause I just saw in 1894, Robert E. Perry. And I'm just like, Wah. no, Wah. <laughs> Okay. In 1894, Robert E. Perry of the U.S. Navy, so the United States one, um, enlisted yep. the help of a local Inuit guide who brought him to Savaksoa Island just off northern Greenland's Cape York. It took Perry three years to arrange and carry out the loading of the heavy iron meteorites onto ships. So he wanted to mm. take them. Mm-hmm. Just take them away. Mm-hmm. This process required the building of a small, short railroad. <laughs> cool. Uh, Perry sold the pieces for 40,000 USD, equivalent to 1.2 million US dollars in 2018, to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, where they are still on display as of 2018. It is unknown whether the fragments were purchased from the Inuit or stolen. And now I'm editorializing, (laughs) which like also some pre-editorializing. It doesn't matter if you gave them money for it. You did steal, steal it. Mm, Yeah. Given the like, they didn't exactly have the infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, great. I'm going to go buy some stocks (laughs) with this cash you gave me. Um, But given, 
given the fact that Perry also went ahead and arguably one could say stole actual human beings, um, and there's like a whole, whole bummer episodes worth of outrage about that. Um, let's not give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, and for that, you can listen to The Dollop. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. Um, about Minnick so, and yeah, and that whole thing. It wasn't it's was that North Pole Madness? Was that the name of that episode? North, it had a whole North Pole Madness had a whole bunch of stories in it. I think just okay. generally about like fever around reaching the North Pole. But I think that. That makes sense, right? I think maybe minute came up in that one, but I okay. don't. But yeah, look it up. Yeah, it's you could just you could just uh, Google Minik M I N I K or I. I'll put sometimes. it in the show notes. Okay, yeah, I yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, so these days, um, it seems like most meteorites are found in polar regions like Antarctica. <laughs> these days. <laughs> In this economy. Um, But it's not that more meteorites fall at the poles. Meteorites land everywhere with almost equal probability. So something for you to think about as you're trying to fall asleep tonight. Mm -hmm. Um, It's that Antarctic conditions or Arctic difference. Yeah. Antarctic, Arctic. That's really it. Yeah. Make all the difference. So many meteorites contain high levels of metallic iron. So if one falls in a humid jungle climate, the combination of moisture and oxygen will corrode it. In Antarctica, a dry desert, the likelihood of corrosion drops significantly, meaning more rocks and more pristine samples. Meteorites are also easier to locate in Antarctica, partly because the contrast between dark rocks and white ice sheet. And since few rocks naturally form on the ice sheets... Yeah, I guess the rock isn't forming there on the ice. (laughs) Because there's all that ice in the way. It's like blooming. Um, The majority of Antarctic rocks collected are extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Um, Even when... That's why... Yeah, space... The Fine. Fine. Even when researchers hunt near the region's mountains, which contain lots of terrestrial rocks, meteorites descent from space rounds their jagged corners and gives them a distinct burnt outer coating, Mm. making them easier to spot. Like a delicious creme brulee. Ah, yum. Mm. Um, The biggest reason, though, is ice flow. Sometimes mountains or other obstructions below the ice clog below the ice, clog the East Antarctic ice sheets path to the sea. If the sheet stays in one spot long enough, strong winds and sunlight can evaporate the top layers and reveal deeper, older ice and large meteorite concentrations. Yeah, so like meteorites that fell a long time ago and then were enveloped. Oh, I hit my, I got so excited, I punched my microphone. They were enveloped by ice and then sometimes these obstructions cause that to melt and it's like revealed. But anyway, this is not a podcast about space rocks. Let's Yet. move on. Mm, not today. Let's move on to other ancient uses of metal and talk about smelting. Smelting Fish. is a process of applying heat to metal ore in order to extract a base metal. It is a form of extractive metallurgy. Smelting <clears throat> uses heat and a chemical reducing agent to decompose the ore, getting rid of other elements, uh, which are often it's gas that gets released during the process and then also slag which is just sort of the the stuff you don't want in your metal and leaving the pure metal base behind the reducing agent is commonly a source of carbon such as coke or in earlier times charcoal and coke is um like burned reduced uh, yeah coal 
it's it's like doubly processed coal. Yeah. When when I was a kid, we would go see the old Coke ovens yep. up in the mountains. And that's where Coke comes from. Yeah. Neither cocaine nor, nor soda. Nope. Anyway, Coke. this has been Coke Corner. <laughs> from the abstract of a paper in the Journal of Archaeological Science titled, quote, On the Origins of Extractive Metallurgy, New Evidence from Europe. The beginnings of extractive metallurgy in Eurasia are contentious. The first cast copper objects in this region emerge around 7,000 years ago, and their production has been tentatively linked to centers in the Near East. This assumption, however, is not substantiated by evidence for copper smelting in those centers. Here, we present results from recent excavations from Belovod, a Vincha culture site in eastern Serbia, which has provided the earliest direct evidence for copper smelting to date. The earliest copper smelting activities there took place around 7,000 years ago, contemporary oh. with the emergence of the first cast copper objects. Through optical, chemical, and provenance analysis analyses of copper slag, minerals, ores, and artifacts, we demonstrate the presence of an established metallurgical technology during this period, exploiting multiple sources for raw materials. These results extend the known record of copper smelting by more than half a millennium with substantial implications. Extractive metallurgy occurs at a location far away from the Near East, challenging the traditional model of a single origin of metallurgy and reviving the possibility of multiple independent inventions. So I, yeah, that I have neat. a question. Yes. Why would people assume that even in the absence of evidence for like copper smelting, like actual like intensive metallurgical activity uh -huh. in the Near East, why would they assume that that's where it came from? Um, the thing that I can think of, because, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on this, but iron appears there very early. And I think maybe the thought process was, you know, it, copper typically comes before iron in the sort of progression of metal uses. Oh, that's much more charitable than the reason I came up with. What's your reason? Is that it's the cradle of civilization and obviously it came from there because they were civilized. And like, I mean, I'm sure that's a part of it. Serbia couldn't possibly be. I'm sure I'm sure that's a part of it. I'm sure people were willing to accept that as like, oh, yeah, even though there was no evidence. Um, but yeah, so what I was thinking is there there is um, ironwork there that's associated maybe like 5000 years ago. We'll get to it with with Hittite people. Oh. But yeah. Are we becoming Hittitologists? Only a little. Um, so I also found oh, a fun a article, a little bit of hit. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I found a cool article on Haaretz by Ruth Schuster that covers a study by this same Serbian team, but also focuses on the early occurrence of that timeless human trick, bootlegging. Yes. <laughs> on that scam. Oh yeah. The grift. <laughs> People and other animals what? have always been suckers. <laughs> Wait, man, she just like called us out. Just like dragged us from the beginning. You're animals. Ruth, 
People and other animals have always been suckers for bling, it turns out. Jewelry and other things were being made from metal thousands of years before the development of smelting or extracting metal from ores by means of high temperature. Great. Copper beads made by hammering naturally occurring copper metal or native copper have been found from 10,000 years ago, though the earliest known smelting known wouldn't develop for another 5,000 years. So after we humans discovered how to extract metal from rock, we began to experiment with mixing different metals, as in alloying with copper. But why did we do it? And what did the earliest smelted alloys look like? It bears noting that gold and copper are relatively soft metals. So even putting aside the scarcity of the resource for gold, they were sub-ideal for making weapons, for instance. Stick a pure copper spear into a boar, and all you get is a very angry boar. One motivation to monkey with alloys could be to make a tougher metal that doesn't bend so easily. But another motivation may have been the dazzle factor, concluded Dr. Miliana uh, Radivievic, lead author and researcher at the McDonald Institute for Archaeological Research, University of Cambridge, and the international Serbian English team in a paper published in the Journal of Archaeological Science. People seem to have agreed over the millennia that gold is pretty. <laughs> And it's also rare. It seems that the prehistoric peoples of the Balkan were faking gold, making alloys to look like it. One reason we didn't realize that the ancients were apparently mixing metals to make gold-looking alloys is that until now, we didn't know what the alloys looked like when manufactured some 6,500 years ago. Gold is a noble metal that doesn't corrode. No, I'm, I'm not giving it like a character judgment. That's what it's called in, in chemistry when it's something that it's a, um, it's a just is metal. inert. No, it's, it's just chemically it's rude. <laughs> Gold is a noble metal that doesn't corrode and doesn't change color over time, and we know very well what gold alloys look like. Most other metals do change color. The surface of silver artifacts turn black, the surface of copper ones turns green, and a patina forms. So we can only guess at the actual hue of various copper alloys when they were forged. The Serbian-English team reached the conclusion that aesthetics were crucial in the development of the first known copper alloys after recreating 64 alloys of copper mixed with arsenic and or tin and building a diagram mapping the colors that these of variable copper tin arsenic uh, compositions would have originally had. Wait, that's a weird, there's an, that of shouldn't be there. Mapping the colors that these variable copper tin arsenic compositions would have originally had. They then generated a color chart of alloys, and now we know what the ancient bling really looked like. After realizing the copper alloys seemed to have been made to look like gold, the team concluded that innovation by the ancients was probably driven more by look than efficiency. The ancients wanted their metal to look like gold rather than deliberately experimenting to make a tougher weapon or tool. They wanted to dazzle. I mean, could be both, yeah. really. Right? Um, like, so, okay. You said mm -hmm. patina. Yeah, do you say patina? I say, no, no. I was going to ask you about this because I never knew how to say it. Patina? No, no. I never knew how to say it until Antiques Roadshow would talk about it and they said patina. I've heard multiple people say patina. Yeah. And I thought it was a joke, like how I say pajamas as a joke. <laughs> you want to put on my pajamas? And I was just like, are you, are you punking me? Yeah, so... To patina? be honest, I say patina, patina? mostly because, the, you know, the little pasta that's called pastina? No. There's it's like little teeny stars. And my mom oh, used to yeah. make it for me when I was sick. Yeah. And it's pastina. So patina uh -huh. made sense to me. I don't know. Yeah, they that's just how they said it on the Antiques Red Show. I have no reason for saying patina other than I have heard it that way and it's just what right? my brain Same. shows. No, this is just sometime in the last like 
year or two, people okay. who, who people said it to me and I was just like, what? That, that said, Patna. I would say something is patinated. Like if it had a, if it has Instead a patina, patinated. Yeah. <laughs> if it has a patina on it, it is patinated. Uh, well, while we deliberate that, how about we have another quick ad break? This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Okay. All right, now we've got that sorted. Um, let's get back to talking about Aloys. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so proud of yourself. I'm very proud of you, too. That was very good. <laughs> let's, let's talk about one of the most prevalent alloys in archaeology. Bronze. Kind of a big deal. Even though it's third place. Um, it has a whole age named after it. Mm-hmm. Bronze. You thinking of bronze? Got it. Everybody thinking about bronze? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, bronze is an alloy consisting primarily of copper, commonly with about 12 to 12.5% tin, and often with the addition of other metals, such as aluminum, manganese, nickel, or zinc, and sometimes non-metals or metalloids, such as arsenic, phosphorus, or silicon. These additions are included to affect the properties of the alloy, like how soft or how hard you want it to be or how well you can draw it into a wire. Um, One of the coolest things about bronze is that the different components don't always come from the same place. So like in order to like the place where you create the bronze may be nowhere near any of places that you get the other the parts of it that go into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you can use different technological approaches to find where on the earth different metals came from. Um, It's similar to how um, when I was talking about... um, Oh, ceramics? With the ceramics, yeah, where you can can pretty... You can pinpoint more or less um, where things come from. Uh, And from there, you can get a sense of commerce and exchange networks between people in the past. So you can get a a sense of like the complexity. So like there's a, you have to assume that there was a degree of complexity anyway, in order for bronze to even happen. Right. And then once you look at the bronze, once you examine it, you can get a better sense of the like mechanics of that. Right. um, And I've I've helpfully included a link for the show notes from ThoughtCo, which is what what are exchange systems? (laughs) So... Cool. Yeah. Uh, Very great. So the 10 component of bronze is a major help there. 
uh, because tin is not all that common. Known sources of tin in ancient times. So I'm saying tin, T-I-N. <laughs> I know. Like, not, not the number after nine. Not the number after nine, but I say them the same. I know. Deal with it. We had fun at the at the conference when uh, oh wait I had to ask so, you either for, you had to ask me for a pin or a pen yeah and so I, I like, well in my day job we have lapel pins and we have like writing instruments uh-huh. and mm. I they sound the same to me when other people say like, it's it's tough um, so known sources of Tin in ancient times include the southeastern tin belt that runs from Yunnan in China to the Malay Peninsula. From, <laughs> from Yunnan in China to the Malay Peninsula, um, Devon and Cornwall in England, Brittany in France. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Brit- Brittany. It's right, it's right next to Jennifer in France. <laughs> Um, the border between Germany and the Czech Republic, Spain, Portugal, Italy, and Central and South Africa. Uh, so got 10 there. Um, Syria and Egypt have been suggested as minor sources of 10, but the archaeological evidence there is inconclusive. There's another way we can find evidence of trade in bronze, its component parts and things made of bronze. We can look for the shipments that never got where they were going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In antiquity, bronze statues and goods were often shipped from place to place, and some of those ships were lost at sea, only to be found later by those exploring the ocean depths. Here's a great example, and like a great example that is sort of amazing. We've not brought it up yet. Yeah. Um, from a Smithsonian article by Bridget Katz from 2017, and this is the Antikythera device. Mechanism. Slash, slash shipwreck, the Antikythera shipwreck. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> while sailing from Asia Minor to Rome in around 60 BCE, a hulking ship went down off the coast of Antikythera, a small Greek island between Crete and the Peloponnese. Um, since it was discovered by sponge divers in 1900, the Antikythera shipwreck has yielded a trove of ancient artifacts, and a recent expedition suggests there are still more treasures to be found. As Ian Sample reports for The Guardian, marine archaeologists have unearthed an arm made of bronze at the site, and they believe that at least seven rare bronze statues may lie buried there. The Return to Antikythera expedition, conducted by experts from the Greek effort of underwater antiquities and Lund University in Sweden took place over 16 days in 2017. Divers found the disembodied arm Mm. using a quote bespoke underwater metal detector. (laughs) I want one. Which has also indicated the presence of several bronze statues lying beneath heavy boulders. The dive was carried out in a previously unexplored area of the wreckage. Other trips to the site had revealed that the ship was packed with valuables before it went down. Over the years, archaeologists found jewelry, luxurious glassware, pottery, and a beautiful bronze statue known as the Antikythera Youth. It's a fragrance coming out next season. Um, But the most famous artifact pulled from the wreckage is arguably the Antikythera mechanism, a remarkable device that showed the movement of the sun, moon, and planets, and was thought to have been able to predict eclipses. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I read that the first time as predict ellipses. And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Thought to have been able to predict. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Researchers who embarked on the most recent expedition found a sarcophagus lid made of red marble, a silver tankard, uh, fragments of the ship's frame, nice, um, a human bone, just the one, and just one bone, and a curious bronze disc that was initially believed to be a part, of, a missing part of the Antikythera mechanism. Experts X-rayed the disc expecting to find gear wheels, but instead they fa- they discovered the image of a bull stamped onto the object. Fair enough. Um, It is possible then (laughs) that the artifact was a decorative element that was once affixed to a shield, a box, or even the body of the ship. It was the, The uh, you know how jaguars have the jaguar on front of the car. It was, it's like the the hood ornament on the ship. I thought, I I thought that it was like they had a like novelty, like gendered restrooms where it's like (laughs) bulls and heifers or something. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Antikythera Sports Bar. <laughs> um, yeah, Hate that's that. what the youth was doing there. Mm, um, mm-hmm. The star discovery of the excavation was the bronze arm, now rusted and mottled from the centuries it spent submerged in water. The arm is slim, and its hand appears to be making a turning gesture, which may indicate that the statue once depicted a philosopher, according to the researchers. <laughs> which, like, okay. Ah. Uh, <laughs> So is it because like it's, just, it's a weedy academic? Yeah, I know. That's it's just like ugh. <laughs> this guy has no muscles. He must have been a thinker. <laughs> Archaeologists are keen to scout out the other bronze relics that were detected at the Antikythera shipwreck because relatively few classical bronze sculptures have survived to the present day. Bronze artworks were often recycled and repurposed during the ancient period, making the discovery of ancient bronzes a rare occurrence, which is true. Most of the, the bronze um, bronze sculptures that we have are from shipwrecks. Like they yeah. wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's they the wouldn't only have maintained way that their form. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And statues like those underwater bronzes were likely made by a process known as lost wax casting. And I wanted to talk about that for a minute because when I was young and read about that, it really bummed me out because I thought it was an ancient casting process that had been lost to time. So imagine my delight when I learned that past me was a dum-dum and it's only the wax that really gets lost. Didn't you, you did this, right? I did. Yeah. I I remember uh, like being on the blue bus with you one day because I was coming back from office hours and you were like, oh yeah, I was doing my lost wax casting. I didn't say it like that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So in the show notes, we will include a video from the National Sculpture Society that has some really (laughs) jaunty piano music in the background that shows how the process works. It's like Tin Pan Alley. Yeah, it was like, da, da, oh, da, da, it would da, be da, 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 Tin Pan Alley. Hey. Hey. Bronze Pan Alley. Um, but I'm also going to summarize the process here. the tin to make it bronze. Yeah, I know. I know, bud. You okay, did great. That's saying. a great joke. Thanks. Thank you. Casts can be made of the <laughs> wax model itself, which is the direct method, or of a wax copy of a model that doesn't have to be of wax, and that's the indirect method. So these are the steps for the process that involves the wax model. So first, an artist or mold maker creates an original model from wax, clay, or another material. Wax and oil-based clay are often preferred because these materials retain their softness. And then, a mold is made of the original model or sculpture. The rigid outer mold contains the softer inner mold, which is the exact negative of the original model. 
Once that mold is finished, molten wax is poured into it and kind of swished around until an even coating is uh, covers the inner surface of the mold, and this is usually about an eighth of an inch or three millimeters thick. And this is repeated until the desired thickness is reached, or you can just fill the whole thing with molten wax. Typically, though, you want a hollow wax copy, which is then chased, which means that a heated metal tool is used to rub out any marks that show where the mold came together, because usually the mold is in two pieces and you get that line around the halfway point that shows that it was made by a mold. So chasing gets rid of that. And then the wax is dressed to hide any imperfections. So meaning it's just they, they sort of fix it up. And then the wax looks exactly like the finished piece will. The next step is called sprewing, sprewing, which is the wax copy is sprued with a tree-like structure of wax that will eventually provide paths for the molten casting material to flow and also for air to escape, which is super important. The carefully planned sprewing usually begins at the top with a wax cup, which is then attached by wax cylinders to various points on the wax copy. That doesn't have to be hollow because it'll get melted out by the, the hot molten liquid that you pour in. The sprued wax copy then has to be covered in a plaster or clay shell. The bigger the piece, the thicker the shell needs to be. Only the inside of that wax cup is not coated, and then the cup's flat top serves as as the base on which the piece stands during this process, so it's usually upside down. The core is also usually filled with fireproof material, because the next step is called burnout. The ceramic shell-coated piece is placed cup down in a kiln whose heat hardens the, the coating into a shell, and then the wax melts and runs out. That melted wax can then be recovered and reused, although sometimes the temperature is so high that it's just burned up. Now all that remains of the original artwork is the negative space formerly occupied by the wax inside the hardened ceramic shell. The molten metal can then be poured through that cup. It acts like a funnel, and the sprewing channels help to uh, release air and guide the molten metal where it needs to go. And the shell is then hammered or chipped away, releasing the rough casting, and then any little imperfections are filed away. Et voila. So this is, like, really hard. It's a lengthy process, yeah. And so you could do lost wax or the other way. Well, the other way, it's... No matter so, what, like, it involves wax. Like, no matter what, it involves okay. an interior that can get melted out. So okay. there's there's direct and indirect. The direct way is that you pour the, the molten metal in kind of on top of the wax, right? And so the, the molten metal itself just burns the wax out of it. The other way, the, the indirect way, is that you first heat the the cast and then the wax melts out, and then you cast it. The way that I did it was direct. The wax was still present, and there was this like amazing mechanism that pulled this cauldron of molten bronze across this big old sand pit, because you set your your molds into a pit of sand because it holds them upright, and you don't have to have someone there holding while you pour (laughs) molten metal, which is probably for the best. uh, It happens at the end of Terminator 2. Oh, right. I thought you were going to say Game of Thrones. I don't know. I still haven't well, seen Terminator. Yeah, like right. I would refer to Game of Thrones. Okay, well, the last metal we'll talk about today is iron. Mm-hmm. Iron. Yep, that's <laughs> how I work very hard not to say it. The development of iron smelting was traditionally attributed to the Hittites, not just horses, iron too. It was Maybe. believed that they... <laughs> no, no, because we'll get there. I know. I mean, they didn't invent horses either. Um, 
It was believed that they maintained a monopoly on ironworking and that their empire had been based on that advantage. According to that theory, the ancient sea peoples... Yep. Sea peoples who invaded the Eastern Mediterranean and destroyed the Hittite Empire at the end of the late Bronze Age were responsible for spreading the knowledge through that region. There's actually no archaeological evidence of the alleged Hittite monopoly. Um, while there are some iron objects from Bronze Age Anatolia, which is where the Hittites were, which is now predominantly the state of Turkey. The number is comparable to iron objects found in Egypt and other places of the same time period. And only a small number of those objects were weapons. Mm-hmm. A more recent theory claims that the development of iron technology was driven by the disruption. Oh, great. So we're here to disrupt the Stop copper and Stop tin it. trade routes. Stop that. <laughs> Due to the collapse of the empires at the end of the late Bronze Age. These metals, especially tin, were not widely available and metal workers had to transport them over long distances, whereas iron ores were all over the place. Hearts was good to us this week. Here's an excerpt from another article, this time by Nir Hassan, about some recent experimental ironworking in Israel. The Iron Age was a turning point. And so I'm quoting from this article here. Yes. The Iron Age was a turning point in the history of the land of Israel. Iron tools began to appear about 3000 years ago, gradually supplanting the softer copper and bronze tools. It was also a time of dramatic political change um, as the Hebrew kingdoms, Judah and Israel, began to take shape, which may or may not have had to do with the advent of iron. However... It has never been quite understood how the ancients actually produced their iron. Excavations around Israel have unearthed rusted remains of ancient iron tools and in some places slag from iron production as well. But the scientists know little about where the iron ore was mined or how the iron bearing ore was processed as a raw material and how it was then smelted. However, there are only so many ways that people in Judah and ancient Israel, um, could have generated temperatures high enough to extract the iron from ore. And Dr. Adi um, Eliyahu Mm -hmm. of Ariel University set out to recreate the long-forgotten process. Using the means that could have been available at the time and some common sense, um, Eliyahu, who studied chemistry and archaeology at the Weizmann Institute in Rehovot, and her colleagues set out to make iron the old way. The first stage was to gather iron-rich rocks, which was done from two streams in the, in the Negev, um, Nakarot and Paran. Uh, rocks with iron can be identified by their reddish hue. There you go. Yeah. The next stage was to heat the rocks in an open fire, which reached a temperature of about 500 degrees Celsius. Then the hot rocks were pulverized into a fine gravel, which was placed into a tall, narrow kiln made of strong clay together with coal. The kiln had an opening for ventilation at its bottom. uh, This crude furnace could reach a temperature of 1,300 degrees Celsius, which is really, really, really hot. Super hot. Super hot. Um, It is true that researchers gave themselves some wiggle room. Their predecessors in smelting 3,000 years ago definitely didn't use electric bellows and hair dryers to create airflow. Or airflow. Yeah, or airflow. Okay. They would have used slaves or workers wielding bellows made of leather. Yep. 
after about four hours of burning the ore, occasionally adding more and feeding the kiln more coal as needed, an opening was made in the bottom of the furnace to let out molten slag. Inside the belly of the kiln was a lump of iron ready to be worked into tools or whatever. Okay. That's what that's what the article this said. Article. And that was yeah, a weird part of it. It's like tools or whatever. Okay. Or whatever. It was rather like a birth, Eliyahu says. 35 kilos of ore produced seven and a half kilos of iron. Which is a one-fifth yield. Is that what more. birth is like? I don't know. Never done it. A one-fifth yield? Okay. <laughs> well, something, something, whoever smelt it. Delta, yep. I don't and know. And that's gonna do it for us this week. Thank this you. This was as always. fun. It was fun. I thought I it had was fun. fun. Maybe. Yeah. I hope other people. Mm, think I hope fun. so. Yeah. Totally oh. metal. <laughs> I had I had a lot of fun making that theme song. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you as always for listening. We will be back in your ears soon with more sweet, sweet content, which you can find on just about any podcast machine you choose. Have we mentioned we're on Spotify? We're on Spotify. Yeah. We have. But we Mm -hmm. are. We are. And yeah. yeah. Um, We're also on social media. Social meds. Yep. So you can follow us on the social media for even more stories from archaeology and anthropology or just us um, and pictures to go along with our episodes and so on the facebook we are at the dirt podcast on twitter it appears this week no we no, no no dip podcast <laughs> no wait i got the r oh no i don't know it's drip podcast <laughs> at, at drip podcast <laughs> no say it right twitter we are at at dirt podcast and on the on the gram on the ig over on the insta we are at at the dirt pod. Yep. Um, yep. That's it. You can that's see all, all of that. <laughs> you can see I'm all done. of that together at the dirtpod.com where we also have merch. I just uploaded a new design today. It's very good, especially if you study planty parts. <laughs> it's Hello, so dumb. Phytolith I love people. it. It is <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> I didn't come. That's a, it was a direct suggestion from one of our Twitter followers. Slash oh, sorry. Listeners. No, no, it is. I think dumb it's brilliant. No. Hi, Shira. I love it. <laughs> I think somebody bought it already. Yeah, I know. Sony <laughs> definitely did. Um, <laughs> so you can buy some merch you and get, <laughs> get some sweet merch. And all of those proceeds do support the podcast. And you can also support us at a number of attractively priced tiers by going to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thanks, everybody. We were a little Thanks. punchy, this one. Thanks. We, we love you. <laughs> Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.